Welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a new podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. On Straight Talk, we bring the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. My poor intern did probably 250 micro-fermentations in five-gallon buckets. I don't think it's a bad thing if a family business turns into like a 200 or $300 million business. It was kind of a mess, to be honest with you. I'm sure the three of us could talk for hours just about this. Not that we'd want to, but we could. <laughs> Damn it, Rob, I'm a wine columnist, not a real doctor. Did I not have to wear this gown? <laughs> I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator. And in this episode of Straight Talk, we're highlighting our November 15th, 2022 issue. Wine Spectator's annual California Cabernet Report anchors one of our most anticipated issues of the year. So for our debut podcast episode, I decided to invite three of Napa Valley's most prominent winemakers to join me for a roundtable discussion. And we start with Thomas Rivers Brown, the longtime winemaker for Schrader Cellars, where he's made dozens of classic-rated Cabernets. He also has his own label, Rivers Marie, and consults for dozens of clients in the Valley, including Gemstone, Outpost, and more. Winemaker Andy Erickson worked at Harlan and Screaming Eagle before leaving to focus on his own label, Favia, which he owns with his wife, viticulturalist Annie Favia. Andy also consults at Maya Camas and Dalaval and handles the winemaking for the new Tokalon Vineyard Company owned by Constellation Brands. Helen Kevlinker's eponymous label includes a portfolio of Rhone varietal wines as well as Cabernet. She made the wines at Bryant Family and Kenzo Estate before joining Grace Family in 2014, where she has stayed on following its sale to new owners a few years ago. She also consults at Carte Blanche and is partner and winemaker with golfer Christy Kerr's project, Kerr Cellars. All three of you have carved out pretty spectacular careers here in Napa Valley. You've all been on the cover of Wine Spectator. You've all got decades of winemaking experience. And you're all consultants, and you all have your own labels. Thomas, we've chatted a little bit about that. How do you wear the two hats, especially when sometimes your your client wines go for prices that are significantly greater than your own wine? Is that a delicate dance, Thomas? Well, I, I think I did a pretty good job of ignoring Rivers Marie for a long time, and I'm trying to change that because <laughs> okay. that was uh, silly and didn't make any sense. But I, I do like both hats. I like the idea of all these clients just in general because it really informs our decisions about a vintage because we get a huge database really early on. It's very broad-based, even being in the Sonoma side, which is really exciting for me just to see something different. Combining the two, I think, is fine. I think you're always a little worried that clients might be upset if they see your personal lines getting big scores or whatever. That was like a beginning of career kind of stuff. That Those, those concerns just are kind of gone, I think, at this point. And I think all of our wines can be less expensive than our client wines because there's no winemaking fees <laughs> in our own wines. You don't have a consultant working with you at Rivers Marie? <laughs> I do not, and I have not paid myself in the 20 years of Rivers Marie. So um, maybe some living expenses here and there and maybe some wines for the seller, but that's mm. about it. Um, but I, I find the combination of the two work really well. The cross-promotion can work really well. You're putting your best effort towards everything simultaneous, and everything is being bettered because of the simultaneous work. And so I think people see the benefit of you having your hands in a lot of different things. 
Well, your attention to your own label, which you've returned to uh, in force over the last few years, is definitely showing through. So congrats right. there. But right. Helen, did you ever feel like you had to sacrifice some of your own stuff to handle your client's stuff first? Totally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, just like <laughs> Thomas Keplinger, I started it in 2006 with 250 cases, and it was a side project. So it was something that I did um, after I did everybody else's you know, wine. So I would go down and do um, my own pump overs or punch downs. Everything was made in T-bins. I had no money. Mm. So um, I would do things very early in the morning and then late at night. And uh, DJ, my husband, would come down and meet me with dinner and ask if there was something he could do. And I would say, yes, <laughs> please go like punch down all of those things over there. <laughs> You, you like uh, Thomas, get to work with Tokalon Fruit, Andy. Yes. Do you fanboy out on a vineyard? No, oh, I fanboy out on a, a lot of vineyards. <laughs> I'm a total terroir geek. Yeah. So I I love, and I would agree with, with both of them that, you know, having a hand in a lot of different things is, it makes it more exciting. And you, and you see so many different things every year. It's almost like working multiple harvests every year. And that's when you learn so much about the craft. And so I love... I love all the different vineyards and clients that I have, you know, equally, of course, <laughs> but it's just great to hear you two talk about your own labels because Fabia, same thing. It, it started very small. It was just me and Annie back in the day, and it was viewed as a side project. And it always bothered me when I was out on the road and with a distributor or something, and they're talking about, yeah, this is Andy's side project. And I'm thinking like, <laughs> this is not a side project. This is as important as everything else. So you know, now I refer to it as the family winery instead of my little side project. And people who love wine, they're not buying one brand of wine. So it's not like, I mean, there's friendly competition between people, but it's not like if one person wins, somebody else is losing in the valley, right? Like if we all make better wines every year, you know, everybody's winning. So it's fun in that way. Yeah. Be the first to know when Wine Spectator releases its latest top scores and reviews every Wednesday in our Insider Weekly Newsletter. Check out a free sample issue and subscribe at winespectator.com slash insider. It's your online treasure map to our editor's most exciting new discoveries. All right, let's move to the lightning round here. We'll go Andy first on this round. A Cabernet not made by you that opened your eyes recently. Recently, well, I'll go to the McDonald Brothers, the McDonald mm-hmm. Wines, you know, Tokalon Vineyard. I, I love those wines. I mean, old vines, pure classic style. And it's really cool to see a younger generation coming in and putting a flag in the ground and getting some attention with something that's really exciting. Ellen? The 2018 Isley was beautiful. I had that recently. Just gorgeous, beautiful fruit, beautiful purity, flowers, texture, just delicious yeah they've done a, a great job there thomas you, you drink a lot of wine thomas so what's and, and <laughs> thank you not a lot of cabernet <laughs> actually i mean you drink a lot of other things but what the cabernet has kind of made you go oh well so i think we we tend to focus on a lot of stuff with a little bit of age and right now i've been banging the drum for california from 87 to 96 and so last friday with a couple winemaker friends we did 90 montebello and 89 this is the more controversial wine 89 Dime Creek, Red Rock. Mm -hmm. And I think 88 and 89 are both vintages that are kind of written off in Napa a bit. This 89 Dime Creek, Red Rock was awesome. Fully resolved tannins, good maturity, good ripeness levels, just starting to kind of unknit the back end tannin. 
that wine was just mind blowing. And then the 90 Montebello, which I don't think I'd ever had that vintage before. Another just stunning wine balanced perfectly by all that natural acidity. And those wines were just in such a great sweet spot. I got to hang out with Thomas more often. I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, I, I, did, I, did not, I did not bring those wines. Okay. I brought the Costa Rica. Okay. So, yeah. <laughs> let's, um, let's talk about vintages for a little bit. Uh, 2019 is basically the one that's on retail shelves now and everyone is releasing. Um, give us a rundown on, on the vintage, uh, Helen. I find them to be really elegant and pretty and um, silky and incredibly drinkable. And while 18, I know I'm skipping into 18 a little bit, but while 18 was um, more, you know, more tannin, more structure, more plush, bigger wines, certainly more ageable. 19s are just beautiful to drink now, very accessible. I really, it's a vintage I really like. I have a slight preference for that vintage over 18. Um, I sort of liken it a, a bit to 16, which is probably my favorite vintage ever that I've worked with. Whenever you get these crazy wet springs, you just feel good going into the year. And when we have years like that, it just sets us up for success. The days of having a wet May and then not getting stuff to the finish line because of it is they just feel like they're gone. And so 19 for me, to Helen's point, classic, elegant, supple, pretty. It's been fun the past couple months writing the tasty notes for the 19 wines and really kind of comparing between 18 and 19. As a growing season and like the health of the vines, they're both really great seasons. I mean, strong vines, plenty of fruit. The 18 wines definitely, as the other two have said, just powerful wines, dark black fruits. I really love the energy of the 19s. Like for me, that's the word I keep using in my descriptions of the 19s is just they have high energy, like this brightness and you know, aromatic excitement and and lots of intensity on the palate. Not as big as the 18s, but for me, maybe more enjoyable for for me because I like wines like that. It's been it's been fun to taste through a lot of them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's an inner purity and a, and a freshness. They even have floral elements. They're not top heavy at all. They just they they glide through so beautifully. It's it's almost like they're they're too easy to drink. But right. you know, that's the tannin structure versus 18. Um, but two back to back vintages that are really impressive. And um, looking ahead, though, there's a blip. In September 2020, a wildfire erupted in northern Napa Valley. It burned for more than three weeks, spreading into Sonoma County and consuming more than 60,000 acres. Winemakers faced the challenge of deciding what, if anything, to do with smoke-exposed grapes. It was a very interesting vintage, let's put it that way. Um, we learned a lot in 2017 when you know the fires came later. In 2020, we did a lot of experimentation and lab testing. When we decided to make wine, we just made the wine the normal way we would. We weren't going to mess around. And I'm really happy we did because some of the wines are fantastic. You know, for Favio, we're only going to release a Coombsville Cabernet Sauvignon and then our second wine, which is going to totally over-deliver. Well, at Grace, we picked, we picked, I mean, it's an estate winery, so it was, you know, we really wanted to learn I mean, just like Andy and Thomas, we did so many micro-fermentations. I mean, my poor intern in 2020 did probably 250 micro-fermentations in five-gallon buckets. And, and we tasted those wines regularly at, you know, three- and six-month intervals. And after all of that, we didn't feel comfortable bottling anything under grace. Thomas, you probably have the most clients of anyone at this table. What was your... <laughs> multi-layered decision process like with all the people that you work with it was kind of a mess to be honest with you mm -hmm. um 
it, it, yeah, I, I, I'm sure the three of us could talk for hours just about this. Not that we would want to, but we could. <laughs> um, we we took in stuff we owned, like Helen's point about grace. It's a state fruit. You already paid for it, essentially, with the farm and cost. You might as well bring it in and see what shakes. We took in fruit from growers who probably didn't have any other recourse, people without crop insurance, things like that, negotiated prices for that kind of stuff, and then outright rejected some fruit that was beyond repair and maybe the growers covered. So we bring all this stuff in. We've got stuff from Anderson Valley, Sonoma Coast, Napa at this point, and it's just a slow process. You want to rush in and figure it all out in seven days, and you can't. You, you just need to wait, make stuff the normal way, as Andy said, there's no tricks around it. You got to vinify the, the, your normal way. And then we just kind of let stuff sit and we tasted it every month. And anything we saw that was bad just immediately got jettisoned. And anything we didn't see bad, we just kept it in the good pile. And we just whittled, 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 whittled. Um, white wines made it. Anderson, one Anderson Valley Pinot made it. One or two Pinots from the northern Sonoma Coast, like Annapolis, made it. And then we identified eight cab lots that we thought were good, and they were all up valley, valley floor, and picked early. They got combined into the Catterwall Napa wine that I'm part of, and that's all we did for the whole vintage. Yeah, and you touch on, uh, you know, missing a vintage obviously is an emotional loss, but it's a financial loss too, which the market probably won't realize because they might not even realize there's no 20 from you. They're just going to see your 2021 at one point. But that's a we talked about that how you had to bridge the gap from nineteen to twenty one. It's not easy because you have your own Rivers Marie, which is a small label. Talk about that process. Yeah, I mean, we lost at least five million bucks at Rivers Marie for missing the vintage. A combination of of you know grapes we bought and couldn't use and and lost revenues. And going into twenty one, the scariest part was we were thinking, what if this happens again? Is half of Napa going to go out of business if we lose two vintages? Mm-hmm. And it felt like a very real possibility. Thank goodness it didn't happen, so we did okay. And I think all of us, Ellen even mentioned 17, we're learning from these vintages, not just great growing winemaking, but also business. And so we sent out letters, for instance, to all of our growers, hey, we can't mandate this, but please get crop insurance. I promise you it's the one worthwhile insurance in the entire insurance world. <laughs> please grab this because as we go forward, we can't afford to do these kind of things again. So as much as we're learning on the grape and wine side, the business side is becoming maybe even more important than these vintages. Andy Erickson, Helen Keplinger, Thomas Rivers-Brown, thanks for joining us today. It was a great chat. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully our listeners enjoyed that epic kickoff interview as much as I did. I'm podcast director Rob Taylor, here with our host James Molesworth. And for any listeners who don't already know who James is, let's fix that. When did you join Wine Spectator? I joined Wine Spectator way back in 1997. So you've been... With Wine Spectator, about as long as all of those Cabernet All-Stars have been making Cabernet. Exactly, which is why I often defer to them on matters of Cabernet. <laughs> and now you're a senior editor. You're our special projects director. You're our lead taster for California Cabernet and Pinot Noir, as well as for Bordeaux, the Rhone Valley, and Port. And you used to be our lead taster for South Africa, for Argentina. What else am I forgetting? Uh, still doing the Finger Lakes and New York State in general. Also covered Chile for a while. Also covered the Loire, Provence, Sherry. I wouldn't say I've done it all, but I, I feel like I've done my fair share. You know you're allowed to take a vacation, right? I generally don't, but every now and then I take a day off. And now you have a podcast. We have a podcast, and I'm really excited about it. We've been developing this for a while and we couldn't think of a better way to start than with a California Cabernet 
blast off. Yeah, so speaking of that interview that I just had the privilege of listening to, incredible to have you and those three winemakers in the same room talking shop. You took on the California Cabernet beat back in 2018, and for me personally, as your web columns editor, one of the things I've enjoyed learning about is the distinction between Napa Cabernets from mountain vineyards and those from the valley floor. Talk about that style distinction, because I think it's super useful for consumers to understand. It is, and one of the things I often hear from consumers is that they feel that a lot of Napa Cabernet is alike and that where is the terroir? And there's terroir all throughout Napa Valley. It is just as compelling as Bordeaux or any other major wine region in terms of its diversity. You just have to know where the differences lie. And what I like to tell people is generally there's valley floor and there's mountain. There's benchlands in between that. But the valley floor and the mountain are the two polar opposites. The valley floor, flat, deep soils, very fertile, generally higher yielding and higher vigor. And then what you get is a very plush tannin structure. The wines are very accessible when they're young. They, they do age, but they're, they're the wines that are kind of showy right out of the gate. The opposite end of that are the mountain wines. And these are wines that are, as the name implies, grown on the hillsides of mountains, sometimes at five, 800, 1,000, 2,000 feet of elevation. And what you get here is something that's very different. These are not deep, fertile soils. These tend to be either very shallow or very poor or very hard uh, soil types, sometimes volcanic. And the vines are low in yields naturally. They're low in vigor. And they're built very much on tannin and acidity, which isn't necessarily what you feel from a valley floor Cabernet. That plush valley floor fruit is a very different profile from the more rigid, brighter, and when youthful, harder wine. These are the wines that require time to show their best. They're very different. So what are the appellations or the AVAs that we're looking at when we're talking about mountain wines? So there's five major mountain AVAs in Napa Valley, Atlas Peak, Diamond Mountain District, Howell Mountain, Spring Mountain District, and Mount Veeder. And those are the ones that really produce compelling wine. And those five are all different from each other. What we have in the current issue is a nice package on mountain AVAs when they were created, their acreage, who the top producers are, and what their various differences are, and that's a companion to our Cabernet Report in the November 15th issue. The more you know. The more you know, the better you drink. Okay, now I I really am sorry because I know this is going to be hard for you, but I'm going to ask you to take a break while I check in with Wine Spectator News Editor Mitch Frank. Can you do that? I can do that, but it'll, it'll be a short break, right? You can come back soon. Okay, thanks. Thanks, James. What's new in the world of wine? Wine Spectator is the leading source for wine industry news and trends. From big-name wineries changing hands to wine country wildfires, we'll catch you up on the most important need-to-know news for wine lovers. To help us out with that is Wine Spectator's longtime news editor and our newest senior editor, Mitch Frank. Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. Welcome to our New York podcast studio, and welcome to this beautiful day in New York City. It is a gorgeous fall day in New York, while back home in New Orleans, where I live, we're in what we call fifth summer. (laughs) You know, after we recorded that Napa Roundtable interview, the temperature hit 114 degrees there a few days later. Fortunately, Napa can handle temperatures like that, but there have been some serious heat events in Europe this year that are going to impact the 2022 vintage. That is right. It has not been a typical year in Europe. Wildfires have scorched or come close to multiple wine regions in Spain, Portugal. There was a huge fire raging south of Bordeaux for a couple weeks, and they're just grateful that firefighters were able to keep it away and the smoke was not drifting over the vineyards. 
But even for those regions who didn't have the smoke to deal with, there was the record heat. We had heat waves in July and August that brought temperatures over 100 degrees for multiple days. In Portugal's Douro Valley, the high temperature at night was 99 degrees. So it has not been great for the vines. Uh, It is looking like it is going to be good fruit, but a small harvest. What has the Europeans most concerned is that this is going to become their new normal, that as the climate shifts and transitions, it's going to get tougher and tougher, and they're going to be dealing with things like floods and droughts and freak storms every year. Speaking of those freak storms, more recently there was a, what was it, a tornado in the Rhone Valley? Yeah, it was so unprecedented that nobody really believed it at first. There was a whole week in mid-August of freak storms in France and Italy. Paris saw flash flooding. Corsica had hurricane-force winds. And a tornado ripped through part of Chateauneuf to pop. We had reports from several winemakers that much of the historic La Croix vineyard was stripped of its grapes and leaves, and many top producers report they're not going to make a wine from that vineyard this year. Wow. And they're just grateful that the vines themselves weren't uprooted. Let's go back to Napa, where the hottest topic these days isn't the 114-degree heat spikes, it's the real estate. More specifically, some folks are alarmed by the number of family wineries that have sold to corporations or wealthy investor types. So the big news we learned this summer was that LVMH Moet Hennessy, which is known for brands like Cruc Champagne and Chateau Cheval Blanc, has bought Joseph Phelps Vineyards. Not only is Phelps a Napa icon known for wines like Insignia, but the deal also includes over 500 acres of vines in Napa and in the Sonoma Coast. So it is a big deal. And Napa's Silverado Vineyards sold that same month. In the past five years, we've seen Schaefer, Diamond Creek, Grace Family, and Heights sold to new owners. So here's my question for you. Obviously, the sellers are benefiting here, but is this one of those rising tide lifts all boats scenarios where the growing value of Napa Vineyards is allowing for greater investment and improved quality across the board? Or is the wine industry following in the footsteps of big tech and college football where Power is being consolidated among fewer and fewer haves, and the have-nots are getting priced out. Well, the good news is that buyers like these are going to invest, and we will probably see the quality of Napa wine go up overall. Several of these properties were owned by the second or third generation, and they might not have been interested in staying in the business. What worries me is that the entry price for Napa has gotten very high. Wineries like Phelps and Schaefer and Heights were founded by pioneers who saw Napa's potential at a time when it was not world-renowned. Now you almost have to be a global fashion giant or a Korean luxury real estate firm to buy a piece of Napa. So who's going to be the next Joe Heights or the next John Schaefer? They probably will not be starting their winery in Napa. The entry price is just too high. Oh, brother. He's back already. How's it going, guys? I swear you were in Napa five minutes ago. It seems like that sometimes. I I wish the flight were that short. (laughs) Well, it's probably good you're here. Rob and I were just talking about the recent sales of so many family wine estates in Napa. It's definitely a major topic of conversation in the Valley these days. Uh, You know, in our conversation with uh, Thomas Brown, Andy Erickson, and Helen Kemliger, I I realized, you know, People think of them as consultants first, but really they're the first generation of their own family-owned wineries. And so I thought, well, what an opportunity to ask them about their plans for the future. So let's hear what they had to say. 
there's a lot of turnover in Napa Valley. You guys are all essentially first-generation vintners with your family projects. Do you want those to go to your kids? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. What, what they, in turn, do with it, I have no control over. <laughs> but um, I think we're just seeing stuff. Like, you talk to some of these families, and they're really great folks, and they have, a lot of times, plenty of money. So you're like, why'd you sell? Well, you know, the, it's the third generation. There's nine people in the third generation. Three people want the cash. The other six people can't, don't have that much cash. And so your one option is to sell. So I think we're lucky to be first generation because I think Helen, Andy, and myself will be able to pass along and the kids will be fine, you know, taking on that burden. And maybe they only have one or two siblings to talk to or no siblings and then they're fine. It's what we're seeing in the Valley, I think, is that third generation where there's a lot Mm -hmm. of people involved and things just get really complicated. So, of course, the romantic goal is, oh, yeah, this is the family and it's always going to be in the family. It's a bit unrealistic. Where are you on that, Helen? You, you, I think your child is the youngest of the three. I know, the and I so. only have one. So, um, yeah, I'm just crossing our fingers that he really wants to do it. And if he doesn't, then that's going to be his decision. But for sure, it would get passed to him. Yeah, It's funny. My, my kids are both in college, and we, we don't even talk about it. I mean, I want them to do what they want to do. I don't think it's a bad thing if a family business turns into like a 200 or 300 million dollar business you know if it can stay in the family great but if you've created a business that's worth a lot of money and like and you want an exit I mean, what's the big deal but yeah to andy's point it gets real personal for the consumers as soon as fabia sells to whomever they're like i'm done with fabia it's no longer a family business kind of silly if the ones are still great and you love the people who started it it's like a it's a good legacy to support that brand. I think it just only you, you think the wine is of the same quality. I don't know why this this ownership change would make you hate something so so vehemently. That's yeah. so true. And it also seems like with the corporate entry into Napa Valley, there's been a real effort on the part of those corporations to keep the team in place and to do their own work to learn what makes I mean like what makes wine special? What makes you know Favia special and Rivers Marie? It is the family and the story and the vision and, and like the reflection of, of all of that in a wine. And I, I think it's an interesting time for Napa Valley because we do have a lot of outside corporations and interests coming in. And so it, I think that there is a fear that there's going to be a loss of what made Napa great and, the, and like the, the real core values and the things that made this place you know what it is now. But I think what we're seeing is there's a big effort to try to learn that and not just make it into, you know, a factory. The number of wineries in the valley is not decreasing. People talk about consolidation. I see the the opposite happening. I see more and more growers whose kids want to start making wine instead of selling to one of these big wineries and so you have those new labels which are exciting and I'm very optimistic that that Napa is more like Burgundy than it is like some other regions. I mean, there's just a lot of small producers, a lot of great little vineyards, and you're going to s- still see all these small producers in the marketplace. But yeah, if you have a business that's a quarter of a billion dollars in value, like who's going to step in and buy that? I mean, right. a billionaire or a corporation. If you'd like to hear more of my roundtable discussion with winemakers Thomas Brown, Andy Erickson, and Helen Keplinger, Visit winespectator.com slash podcast for the full-length interview. And coming up after the break, we'll be joined by a very special guest. Stay tuned. Wine Spectator's digital subscribers have access to more than 400,000 wine reviews, 
vintage charts for all major wine regions, the digital edition of our print magazine, wine and food pairing recipes, James Molesworth's web columns, our Insider Weekly newsletter, and much more. Sign up for your special introductory membership, just $4.95 per month, at winespectator.com slash subscribe. Up next, we've got a Wine Spectator legend in her own right, the mysterious and wise Dr. Vinny. Oh, doctor. Hey there, Rob. What's going on today? Well, there's a lot of confusion about wine out there. So I've heard. We have a lot of readers interested in Cabernet, and they're reading about Bordeaux and Claret and Meritage, and they're wondering what the heck is the difference between all these things? Are they the same thing? Got it. Well, let me start with Cabernet Sauvignon. It's one of the most important wine grapes in the world, and you definitely see bottlings from it all over the world. So when you hear someone say they like Cabernets, they're talking about wines made mostly or entirely from Cabernet Sauvignon grapes. And one of the most fascinating things about Cabernet Sauvignon to me is that it's actually a cross between two other grapes you've probably heard about, Cabernet Franc and Sauvignon Blanc. What? Yep. So that's a white grape. Sauvignon Blanc and a red grape, and they made a baby, and that <laughs> grape was Cabernet Sauvignon? Yeah, it's, it sounds unusual, but if you think about it, there are people who have brown eyes that have parents with blue eyes, so it's just something that happens. Makes sense. It is the most widely planted wine grape in the world. It's known for dense, tannic, full-body reds that usually have the potential to age, and because of that, uh, most of the best Cabernets in the world are also some of the most expensive wines in the world. So we're talking the top first growths from Bordeaux, but we're also talking Colt Napa Cabernets. Well, I'm really glad you mentioned Bordeaux because I like to refer to Bordeaux as being the spiritual home of Cabernet Sauvignon. It's Bordeaux, if you've heard of it, is one of France's leading wine grape regions, and Cabernet Sauvignon is one of the important red wine grapes there. But when you buy a bottle from Bordeaux, it's not going to say Cabernet Sauvignon on it. In Bordeaux, red wines are made of blends of several grapes. The two primary ones are Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot, but there can be smaller amounts of other red wine grapes like Petit Verdot and Malbec. Some people make wines from other parts of the world following this model, but it can only be called Bordeaux if it's from the Bordeaux region in France. But if you are making wines from other parts of the world that rely on those grapes, they are sometimes referred to as, and I'm doing air quotes here, Bordeaux-style blends. Can confirm she did the air quotes. <laughs> so that seems like a good opportunity to ask you, what is Claret? Yeah, Claret's, it's always strange to me when the word Claret comes up. It's a nickname that the British wine lovers gave to the wines of Bordeaux. Now, the earliest I could find it uh, referred to is back in the 1700s. So why are we talking about it today? It's seen a big revival in recent years, and I'm pretty sure that's because of the success of Downton Abbey, because they do use the, the term Claret in the show. I'd like to pretend I don't know what you're talking about, but I've seen every episode of Downton Abbey. Yeah. <laughs> Does that bring us to Meritage? Am I, am I saying it right? You are. A lot of people want to say Meritage. I guess it sounds fancier, but... It sounds like Hermitage from the Rhone. Yeah, yeah exactly. But that's for another episode. Meritage... Meritage... Oh, you got me. <laughs> you got me. So, um, Meritage was created combining the words merit and heritage, and it's definitely supposed to be pronounced meritage, not 
Meritage. The Meritage Alliance was founded in 1988 as a way to identify those Bordeaux-style wines outside of Bordeaux. You can only call a wine Meritage if you're a member of the Meritage Alliance. Wineries have to become members and pay an annual fee to use the term. And then to use the term, you have to follow some rules. They're pretty straightforward. It has to be blended entirely from traditional Bordeaux varieties, red or white, with no more than 90% of a single grape. Thanks. But don't correct your mom if she says it wrong. That's good advice, which is what we come to you for. <laughs> I feel so much smarter. Thank you, Dr. Venny. You always cure the wine ignorance that ails me. <laughs> well, the doctor is always in. And if you've got a question about wine, the doctor will see you now. So you can email your questions to drvinny at winespectator.com. That's D-R-V-I-N-N-Y at winespectator.com. And who knows, you might get your question answered right here on this very podcast. That's it for this episode of Straight Talk with Wine Spectator. Not bad for our first try. Thanks, Rob. And since this was the Napa Cabernet episode, I thought I'd throw out a little Easter egg here. I recently blind tasted a lot of Napa Cabernets while I was in Napa, and one of them stood out to me. I gave it the highest score that that particular wine has ever received, and of course it's going to tie right into our next episode. It was the 2019 Robert Mondavi Winery Estates Cabernet from the Oakville Appalachian, and the vast majority of this wine, the fruit comes from the famous Tokalon Vineyard. Now, I don't know if $85 is a lot of money or not a lot of money for a lot of people. It's not a lot of money for Napa Cabernet which generally starts at about 100 bucks a bottle. This was a 94-point wine. This is really rockin' juice. Wow, that is one hell of a QPR. But how do we tie that into our next episode? Well, the next episode spotlights the November 30 issue of Wine Spectator, and we're going to take a deep dive into the Robert Mondavi winery, past, present, and future. We're going to be catching up with family members of the late, great Robert Mondavi. We're going to talk to industry veterans who knew him and worked with him back in the day. And we're also going to talk to some of the people now responsible for shepherding the Robert Mondavi Winery into the future. Well, I'm sold. Meanwhile, for more on the subjects we discussed today, check out the November 15, 2022 issue of Wine Spectator. Visit winespectator.com and follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And until next time, this is James Molesworth reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff. Andy told me that he used to copy off you at UC Davis. She never let me. She was like, she's always had her hand up like that. Like, Are you kidding me? I tried. I sat behind her in every class.